0: So many good things to think about, right? Thank you, band. And um, I don't want to get too far off my topic, but I just want to say um, how much fun it always is, you've heard me say this before, to work with Brad and the band on the songs that somehow we hope fit in with the message. And so far, all three of the songs that we've talked about are working even more perfectly than I thought they would because now I've spent, you know, all this time trying to fashion out some words for us today, and so I just always want to encourage all of us to really, you know, think about those words that are in front of us each week, you know, that first one about the horrible nature of conflict, and you may know the backstory of the chick song, but even if you don't know that, or even if you could set that aside and just think about the anguish of, you know, trying to figure out who's right, who's wrong in a situation, Um, and then love will find you, oh my gosh. That makes me cry. (laughs) And, come thou fount of every blessing. I grew up in a home where we uh, went to a church that uh, had a cappella singing. And, uh, you know, man, we were all good singers. We thought we were anyway. We could sing four parts and all that. I have this fond memory of my dad walking around the house singing, come thou fount of every blessing. Now, with time, some bad things happened in our family. And my dad wasn't there anymore. Um, um, He... he, um, went his way for a while, but when I grew up, I became an editor at Abilene Christian University Press and I got to name a series of little books we were doing on Bible study and I named the series Streams of Mercy Studies. So, that's my little bit of story about why I love that music. Okay, but now, to acknowledge that provocative title, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, That is one of those that I wish I had thought of it, (laughs) but I did not. It is the title of a book written in 2007, revised in 2015, by two psychologists, Carol Tavris and Erin Aronson. I urge you to get on the Internet and watch the videos, especially by Carol Tavris. She's amazing. If you do, you'll hear some of what she says in this message today. They are asking, Why do people dodge responsibility when things fall apart? Why, for instance, endless marriage quarrels over who is right? Why can we see the blindness in others and not in ourselves? Why is it just so hard to admit that we're wrong? Now, for me, it's pretty easy on minor things. I'm driving down the road. I'm going to go see Bob and Mary today. Oh, I turned left. I should have turned right. That's okay. I made a mistake. Unless, of course, my husband is in the car with me and goes, you turned the wrong way. I did not turn the wrong way. This is how you go. I've been this way many times. I know how to drive. Yeah, well, that's what we do. Is <laughs> I don't like to be told that I'm wrong. I rather doubt you do. So anyway, that's what's going on with this sermon today. These two authors, these researchers, tell us that when we are presented with information that suggests that we are wrong or that we're thinking wrong, um, when we're holding on to these beliefs that are really important to us, and then those things are challenged, our brains. Our brains do not like it. We experience a disturbance in our brains around this stuff, and it's called cognitive dissonance. And it's uncomfortable to us. It's literally uncomfortable to us. These two conflicting things are coming together. What we thought, what we held on to, and something contrary. And so very often, we jump to justify what we're thinking or doing. I know how to get to Bob and Mary's house. Well, most of us have pretty high estimation of our opinions. We think we're competent. We think we're smart. We think we are good and kind, by the way. And that's not all bad. <laughs> we have to have some level of confidence to make it through each day, right? But the problem is, without realizing it, often, <clears throat> often we overestimate our competence, our knowledge, our kindness. And then something suge- happens to suggest that, you know, that's not true. And so we resist. We justify. We may even fabricate some facts to soothe this dissonance that we are feeling. One of my favorite stories about this sort of thing is the story of uh, Ignaz Semmelweis. Chances are good that all of us are sitting here today because of his contributions to medical science. He was a A doctor, a Hungarian doctor, practicing in the 1840s, 50s, he was assigned to a maternity ward in Venice. When he got there, he understood, he he found out that the mortality rates for women bearing children was very high. Well, of course, this is alarming. So he sits, sets out to try to figure out what's happening. With observation, he sees that the, uh, the doctors who are assigned to this medical, this maternity unit, are also assigned to work with the cadavers, to do the dissecting, to learn more about diseases. And so uh, they would do that, and then they would go deliver babies. And he began to think they're carrying the disease from the deceased with them. He called them death particles. Now, this was 20 years before uh, the formation of germ theory. And so he told his doctors, okay, you got to wash with a solution of lime and chlorine. And guess what? The mortality rates began to fall. Well, you would think that his colleagues would go, great, thank you so much for helping us undo this terrible problem. We're so grateful for the outcomes. And I'm quite sure some did, but some did not. Some could not accept this new information because they were doctors. They were gentlemen. In those days, doctors were always thought of as gentlemen, and gentlemen's hands do not transfer disease. That's not even a medical opinion. But some people ostracized him, ridiculed him, and that sounds like a familiar story to me. So, with time... The passing of time, this phenomenon of rejecting new evidence because it goes against long-standing beliefs and norms became known as the Semmelweis reflex. So now you know what to do the next time somebody disagrees with your very good point, just call them Semmelweis deniers, (laughs) if you can get that out of your mouth in time. It sounds good, (laughs) doesn't it? It's fun to make fun of. Semmelweis deniers, but it's really understandable on some level, isn't it? I mean, Semmelweis' findings pointed out that the high mortality rates of these mothers was due, in fact, to the doctors themselves, their practices. The doctors who no doubt saw themselves as healers were now being told that, you know, what they were doing was causing death. And so, I can see how it's easy to lean on one's long-standing self-understanding and just reject the information. Well, there's other stories. Warning labels on cigarette uh, packaging were a long time coming. Research had been done for decades showing the links between cigarette smoking and cancer. And it's not surprising that Uh, following a landmark study in the American Journal of Medicine, American Medical, uh, whatever it is, Journal of (laughs) American uh, Medical Association, thank you, doctor, in 1950, you know, said, hey, there's a link here, this causes cancer. It was followed by 400 full-paid ads taken out by the Tobacco Institute. Now, that's not surprising, and they're questioning the findings of those um, researchers. But what is also really interesting is that some doctors who were part of the research and were seeing the evidence pile up also were slow to come to the party. Why? They were smokers, like most people were in the 50s. Wow, this is us, isn't it? It's hard to admit what we've been thinking. It's a cognitive dissonance. Well, um, I'm I'm taking too much time. I'm going to be done with examples of them, of what other people do. And now I'm going to say, (laughs) I'm sure that we can all think of examples of refusing to accept the possibility that we might be wrong or the reality that we are wrong. All of our news outlets keep this right in front of us all the time. We hear about politicians, about sports figures, about celebrities, criminal investigators, And everyday people denying wrongdoing, or at least wrong thinking. Holding on to justifying prejudices, doctrines, ideologies. This is a universal problem. Well, in the end, we can only work on ourselves when it comes to this sort of thing, right? And so, let's just think about some reasons that we do this that we resist you know admitting that we're wrong now i'm going to say things that are obvious but i don't know it's you but my experience is that sometimes the obvious goes right over my head so stay with me in fact i have a whole other message somewhere in my files called simple lessons easy to forget and it's about just obvious things that you know we just choose to ignore or we do ignore so number one one of the this is not number one but one of the reasons that we, you know, resist finding out that we are wrong is this thing of cognitive dissonance. We go through life, we hold on to ideas and beliefs, beliefs about how things should be done, beliefs about how people should act or speak. Beliefs that some people always act that way, right there. Or we have beliefs about church doctrines, we have beliefs about political policies, how to solve social and economic problems, we have these ideas. And then when we're presented maybe with evidence that says, well, that's not the right way to go, that's not going to work, we have this painful cognitive dissonance and we don't like it. In fact, our brains turn off when we hear information we don't want to hear. Our brains light up When we hear information that we do like or that we already think. This is um, known by scientists and now known by you. Our brains turn off and on. But you know what? This is why we like having friends that agree with us. And yet, even sometimes those friends and family disagree with our findings. And then what? It's painful. There's Conflict. And then the other reason that we don't like this uh, new information and we resist it is confirmation bias. That's taken up in what I just said, but we seek out information that confirms what we already think. We uh, let's say we have an argument. Let's say some friends have an argument. Well, he didn't agree with me, and I want to run and tell you. I want to tell you how that went down, and I want you to be on my side. I want an ally. This is how we are. And we practice this all the time, all the time, even if it's not always helpful. So this is normal and natural. This is how we behave. <clears throat> but of course, sometimes we need to focus on something more than how right we are. We struggle endlessly, endlessly with this in the world of politics and religion and Everything else I could name. And it kind of feels to me like it's worse than ever these days. But I wonder, is it? Is it worse than ever? It might be. Or it might be that I keep hearing that and I keep believing it and I keep telling it and I keep telling it and repeating it and believing it. I don't know if there's any room in that mindset for a way forward. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's something more productive than hand-wringing. Of course, we also resist this information, this fact that we might be wrong because of fear. This is a big one, isn't it? We're afraid of the consequences of being wrong. I remember, oh, this story. I remember when I was in my 20s, I was talking with a woman about a certain belief that our church held. I was starting to doubt that, if you can imagine that. Uh, And so was she, but she couldn't let go of it because of her dead grandmother. Now, what I mean by that is her dead grandmother taught her this. And to her, if she let go of it, it would suggest that her grandmother was wrong and her grandmother might be burning in hell for being wrong. (laughs) I know that's a big leap for us Methodists, but if you live in a culture where you think, you know, heaven and hell is about being right and wrong, it was not a big leap for her, and so she held on. To her belief, I kept her there. Well, on a lighter note, one more story. Imagine you get pulled over by a state trooper. You've been speeding. And you can say, well, no, no, I wasn't, there's no signs posted here. Wait, I think your speed gun needs to be recalibrated. I, I, I don't know. My, my, I don't know, I'm not no. I was rushing to save my grandmother from a burning building. Surely, then the trooper will understand when in fact, a simple acknowledgment would be less stressful. So well, well, there's lots of examples of this, aren't there? I mean, you work for a company, there's a new manager. she comes in with new ideas. You thought the old ideas were going fine. Maybe you don't like female managers. Maybe you just are going to set your jaw, because things are going fine, and then things start getting better, and you are faced with the fact that you might have been wrong. It's funny about that. Sometimes, when we're setting our jaw, when we're refusing new evidence, it kind of betrays prejudice, right? Or lazy brain, or stubbornness. So there's lots of examples I know. But um, the the authors of the book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, they say there is hope, and I think we all know there is. And they say what we should do is become skeptics. We should be skeptical about our own thinking. Uh, We should consider the possibility that we might be wrong. We should not believe everything we think. Now, I know skepticism kind of has a negative connotation, but if the goal of skepticism is to find the truth, you know, not simply to confirm what I already think, then, you know, that could be very useful, right? But it won't be easy. It won't be easy. It will require some serious reflection, some serious trying to learn more about the topic at hand, some flexibility, some humility. So this kind of skepticism the authors are advocating for is not just a skeptical personality trait. It is a practice of holding rather loosely to what we think, just in case we might be wrong, and just in case there's another way to think of it. I know that all of us find ourselves in situations where... uh, Somebody just will not agree to this thing that we know we're right about. They won't budge. And all of us find ourselves in situations where we are the ones (laughs) who won't budge. We remain suspicious and negative, and we don't even allow for one bit of that person, that topic, being right all kinds of conflict and harm come out of this, right? And while it's important to have convictions and to feel passionate about things, shouldn't we hold open the possibility that we might be wrong? Maybe do a little better job of waiting for evidence when we hear some story about a new policy, about a politician, a celebrity, a claim of a new drug. Maybe give it time to unfold a little bit. The real challenge is, in fact, to hold loosely enough so that our ideas can make room for these possibilities. But listen, y'all, ours is not a caravan of despair. And so, uh, band, y'all can come on up. And uh, I want us to look again at that scripture that Kelly read. And so, Xavier, I realize that scripture appears in several pieces, so you can just kind of roll through it, you know, slowly, frame by frame, because I'm not going to address every bit of it. This is a well-known scripture, as Kelly pointed out. We often hear it at weddings, but its usefulness goes way beyond the good intentions of the couple who are getting married. So here's the backstory of what's going on in this little thing from Corinthians. Um, Corinth was a church in the ancient world. And imagine, if you can, a church of people who did not get along. I know that is hard to imagine, but that's what was happening. They had major disagreements over what it meant to be Christian, what it meant to be a real Christian, an orthodox Christian, a faithful Christian, whatever we could say. Some of their arguments centered on what some claimed to possess, and that was a special spiritual language that they got from God, and then they could speak this way. didn't matter if people understood them or not. It made them super Christians. And some of their disagreements centered on who was their mentor. Some said, I'm from Paul. Some said, I'm from Apollos. And on and on it went, and there is this divided church. So Paul, the person who is thought to have written this letter, launches into this pretty long book. And finally, in chapter 13, he gets to this. And I always wonder, why didn't he just cut to the chase? Because this is it. This is it right here. Um, and so you know these words love is patient love is kind it doesn't envy it doesn't boast it isn't proud all of my life I have read this scripture and I thought of it as something that I should be doing I should be thinking and I still very much agree with that but now I also add that this is God at work in the world God is patient God is kind. God does not push God's self on others. God protects and endures and perseveres. When I think about these words, and you can roll some more of them, when I think about these words and the difficulty of admitting that I am wrong, I find an invitation to step into a mindset that is willing to accept that I am wrong sometimes and that being wrong don't forget this being wrong does not mean the end of me because love never fails I might fail but love does not you might fail but love does not and so I find an invitation to understand That every one of us is afraid of being wrong. Every one of us is stuck in some ways of thinking. And I think about this particularly in relationship to children and their parents. I wish I had made it just a little bit easier for my kids to admit it when they were wrong. might have spared us all a lot of difficulty. Mistakes are made. We should make it easy on ourselves and others to make mistakes. Things might have been a little better. I could make it easier for them to admit that they had made a mistake, to see that love doesn't fail even when I do or you do. We have a way forward after this. But believe me, I can immediately, even though these words are meaningful and beautiful, I can think of all kinds of examples where that doesn't usually work. But wait. Just wait. Does that mean that it won't ever work? Does it mean it's not worth trying? Of course not. So, final story. This is from Ernest Hemingway's Capital of the World. A man and his son were estranged, and we don't know exactly why, but the dad can't stand it another minute. So he takes out an ad in the local paper, and it says, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montaya, Tuesday at noon. All is forgiven. Papa. Well, Paco must have been a very popular name (laughs) because on Tuesday, 800 young men filled the plaza of the hotel, hoping it was their dad who had written the letter. This is a vision of sons and fathers and mothers and daughters and brothers and sisters imagining that we might be wrong. And there might be a way forward, but it's not easy.